This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, but we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. Well, it's the morning after the night before. It's budget boxing day. Uh, Well, that's it for another year. It all takes so long to prepare and it's all over so quickly. If you've got anything you didn't like, then I at least hope you kept the receipt. We'll talk about the budget in a moment with uh, Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. Coming up in our big thing... Belt tightening of a different kind. The government's launching a £100 million drive to get us all to lose weight. We speak to Prue Leith about uh, whether or not it's going to work and why we should all maybe step away from the cakes. Yeah, that's coming up next. First, though, let's kick off with our columnist panel. It's Thursday, so it must be Webb Cram. It's Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. I'll ask you for your uh, 1960s revivals uh, uh, in a moment. But first, let's uh, let's talk about uh, this this budget thing that everyone uh, seems to be talking <laughs> about. Um, as we uh, just put out the IFS, the Institute of Fiscal Studies, are doing their briefing right now. Uh, they've said that uh, Rishi Sunak's spending plans to help address the UK's battered public finances following the pandemic crisis do not look d- deliverable, at least with, not without considerable pain. How he's actually going to fix the public finances remains to be seen, says Paul Johnson, the head of the IFS. Uh, there's a hole that needs to be filled and soon, he, he, he added. Uh, but the thing that I'm really uh, keen to sort of uh, focus on uh, with you, Esther and Robert, is what should uh, Keir Starmer do about him? Because it does feel as if he's announced, you know, tax rises that people perhaps didn't necessarily expect, lots of pain uh, to come, a black hole, but Labour can't seem to quite land... Uh, a punch on him. Let's uh, let's just take a quick listen to uh, Keir Starmer uh, reacting to the budget yesterday. The Chancellor may think that this is time for a victory lap, but I'm afraid this budget won't feel so good for the millions of key workers who are having their pay frozen, for the businesses swamped by debt, and the families paying more in council tax, and the millions of people who are out of work or worried about losing their job. Whatever spin the Chancellor tries to put on the figures today, as a result of his decisions, we've suffered deeper economic damage and much worse outcomes. 
That was Keir Starmer talking yesterday. Esther, what do you think? What would you, if you were advising uh, Keir Starmer, what would you suggest he goes after Rishi Sunak on? Yeah, it, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because so much of what the Chancellor said yesterday are things that lots of people in the Labour Party agree with in terms of uh, long-term raises, rises in corporation tax. Um, but I think there are some things that have been swerved in the budget, and one of the big ones that people are talking about more today is social care. There still hasn't been anything big on that. And given the sort of centrality of that to the whole coronavirus crisis and probably whatever happens next, I think that would be one area where they could really seek to kind of apply some pressure, point out the Prime Minister hasn't got a plan, despite saying he had one several years ago. Yeah, that's been pointed out this morning. Rishi Sunak has said that um, uh, the government doesn't yet have one. He says, uh, I know the health secretary started that work on trying to see what the solutions might be. It just seems slightly at odds with the fact that Boris Johnson said in July 2019, we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan that we have prepared. Uh, prepared and then lost, uh, presumably. Maybe, maybe the dog ate it. Esther, let's just take a look at some of the sort of snap polling that emerged from the uh, budget yesterday. 46%, this is a YouGov poll taken in the hours after the budget, 46% said they supported the budget measures from what they'd heard and read. Only 11% said they opposed. 40% said they didn't know yet, presumably because they hadn't been paying uh, that much attention. But these are some of the stats that are really striking. 69% uh, said they supported the corporation tax rise for businesses earning over 250 thousand pounds with support across all ages genders regions and major party voters 76 percent of 2019 conservative voters so they supported the corporation yeah. tax increases when you've got tory voters backing tax rises on business uh, rishi sunak's <laughs> hit a bit of a sweet spot though isn't he and annalise dodds was on times radio breakfast this morning and just didn't seem to know what she thought about. She said, well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because George Osborne used to cut corporation tax. Now Rishi Sunak's <laughs> putting it up. And so, yeah. Well, OK, yeah, we know that. Thanks for the history <laughs> lesson. What do, you, what do you think about it? Her, her line seemed to be like, finally, they've come to their senses. And it's like, OK, well, then you agree with them. Um, which isn't <laughs> isn't a very strong attacking position, um, but yeah, he he does seem to be a sweet spot here, which is particularly remarkable when you look at some of the comments he's made in the past and Boris Johnson has made in the past about taxes on business. It it definitely wasn't something they were shouting about a few years ago. Um, I don't know if this is some kind of damaging conversion, but um, but it seems to be serving them very well in the polls <laughs> anyway. And I suppose the thing is, Robert, you were just sort of talked about, well, maybe they should, Labour could go hard on, you know, pay rise for the NHS. Mm. I, I suppose the thing is, it's not very surprising if the Labour Party, you know, if, to actually make the weather and, uh, you know, get people to sit up and take notice. 
Labour saying spend a bit more on the NHS is not necessarily going to sort of move the dial particularly. And I just wonder, and I keep having these arguments actually mostly on Twitter, as to be said, although I have occasionally written about it for the Times, uh, with people. And I say, you know, uh, this question of is, has, is Keir Starmer keeping his powder dry or is there no powder? And other people keep saying, well, this isn't the time to be doing it. Uh, you know, there's no need for him to say anything yet. You know, people aren't listening. And part of me just wonders, well, what points do people start? People are majorly engaged in politics right now and the pandemic and the economy and, uh, and all of that. If the Labour Party hasn't got anything to say now, what are they going to do? They're going to, you know, let us know when's the time to start saying anything notable? Well, I agree. I mean, maybe that, that argument might hold for another few weeks, but it's coming to an end, isn't it? Uh, because although the restrictions are going to still be in place, uh, it's, going to, it's going to feel a lot more normal and it's going to get a lot warmer, for one thing, over the next month or so. And you're going to, there's a general feeling that politics as normal uh, is, is resuming. And so, yeah, it's powder wherever it is needs to be ignited. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. Not only the politics, but life is normal, we'll resume. And there won't be sort of press conferences and statements and and all of that. And so maybe people will start tuning out of politics. And so they might have missed the boat to sort of use use their platform to to resonate. I think there's one straw in the wind about Rishi. I've seen this a few times. His his image is very carefully curated, isn't it, with the hoodie and everything and the the use of the treasury photographer that might be that might be something i mean it doesn't look like a weakness at the moment but what looks what what starts out as a strength can soon become a weakness and the fact that he's he seems to be so polished and so image driven it could be something they could get to work on in fact it, it slightly reminds me of if they did go down that road the david cameron chameleon do you yeah. remember that joined the that, yeah. I can't remember, was it in the? It was quite early in David Cameron's uh, leadership of the Tory Party. It was like, oh, in fact, it was in the in the run up to the two thousand and six local elections, and the oh, Labour really? Party had him done up as a chameleon, a blue chameleon on a bike. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't think it did very well. I think the Tory Party did no. quite well in the two thousand and six local elections. So. I'm grasping at straws here. It, it would all look, but the trouble was it all looked a bit cute. That was the trouble. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, uh, Esther, let's talk about and this, the other problem that the Labour Party have is they're, they're sort of the third uh, most interesting uh, party in British politics <laughs> right now. You've got the, the Tory party dominating in Westminster. Let's talk about what on earth is going on in Scotland right now. Nicola Sturgeon addressing the Scottish Parliament hearing yesterday for hours and hours and hours. She told the the, uh, the inquiry into the allegation, the handling of allegations against Alex Salmond that any suggestion she acted with malice or plotted against her former mentor was absurd. Uh, what do you make of it, Esther? There's, I mean, an awful lot of time and hours and hot air has been expended on this. Are we any closer to getting a conclusion, an outcome, drawing a line uh, under this? No. No, I'm afraid not. Um, I I watched yesterday before I eventually accepted I had to switch over to the budget, um, but it was absolutely gripping. I mean, the way Nicola Sturgeon spoke about her relationship with Alex Salmond just was this very kind of human drama about someone who has obviously been her mentor for a long, long time, and now they're at war with one another. Um, And she gave quite an assured performance that will sort of stave off the immediate danger for her leadership. Um, 
but it is going to run and run, and it comes down to whether you think her assurances were good enough, and people will be split over that, largely by whether they agree with her views or not. That's the thing, is it becomes quite partisan. Um, but as you say, it has been a very kind of labyrinthine drama so far, and it's questionable how much ordinary people are paying attention because even in lockdown, I think they've probably got better things to do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not the it's and, not the box set which is gripping everyone. Yeah, do you, and I think do you th- actually, I the key thing is. It's yeah. quite, like you said, it's quite hard to follow and there's no sort of smoking gun moment which says, aha, you know, a clip that yeah. you can... And I think it's John Rental from The Independent has been having this test uh, on Twitter. Is it a headline which explains what this story is and explains why anyone should care about it? And it's so complicated. You know, there is no smoke. Did Nicola Sturgeon lie? That's That goes to the ultimate, you know, lie to the, the um, uh, Scottish Parliament. And there's no black and white answer to that. Yeah, there's no black and white answer. It's very hard to boil down. Um, I think I've read more explainers on it than I have like actual reactive news stories. <laughs> and um, me, um, but I think what is interesting is that this also comes at a time when she is taking a bit of a hit, not over this, but on her handling of the pandemic. And that is beginning to be called into question a bit. And in a way, I think that's possibly more important, the fact that those two things could intersect um, might just be enough to, to knock her back a little bit from the kind of totally dominant position she's been in for the past six years. What about you, Robert? Have you been gripped by this? Well, I've read the explainers, but and I've instantly forgotten them. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, exactly. I mean, and the ministerial, whether someone breaks a ministerial code or not is, is, of, not, is of little interest to me and probably even less interest to the public. Uh, I think it comes down to what you think of Sturgeon and what you think of Alex Salmon. Uh, and I... I, I just like Nicola Sturgeon, and I think Alex Salmon looks like Kung Fu Panda. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's as good a judgment as that's a, a sharper political analysis of the whole I, thing as I've that, as I've that heard. ever been spotted before. Because I think I might be onto something there. Uh, but the if you can get yourself a time machine, you could probably do, have a lucrative yeah. sideline in doing cartoons or something. Um, yeah, uh, maybe have a word with. Uh, uh, Peter Brooks on the time. Actually, his his, his talking about his cartoon today is terrific. Of uh, of the, Rishi Sunak, if you haven't seen it, because Rishi Sunak, yeah. yeah, his his coke addict. We were talking about that on the show yesterday, revealing I'm a coke addict. He says I'm I'm a total coke addict, holding up his red box outside number eleven. Yeah. And then the next the next picture says that's why taxes are getting so high. Which brings you to the sixties, oh. Matt. I think exactly. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> brings us all back. Uh, before we ask about your your what do you want to revive from the sixties, uh, uh, let's talk about just quickly about your column, uh, Robert. What's your column on this week? Um don't want to lower the mood, but my column is about going to my first and hopefully last COVID funeral uh, a couple of weeks ago, my uncle. Uh, I was hoping that my family might emerge unscathed, but unfortunately we haven't. And my 84-year-old uncle succumbed to the disease uh, 
at the end of January, and his funeral was a couple of weeks ago. So it's about it's about that. And well, funerals are never happy occasions, but just a, you know what a what a miserable business it is. And that was that. I'm really sorry um, to to hear Thank that because yeah, but we were all sort of yeah, it, particularly because it's just at the moment when you feel like we're sort of coming out of this. Um, what was this one that you could was this a funeral you could attend in person or was it only on, uh, well, I, online? Yeah, I, I, I went. I mean, it's the, the limits of the limits thirty people, isn't it? And I and I fell within that as his as, as his nephew. And it's a real you know. I mean, everybody says they would have been, their funeral would have been packed, but he was a genuinely a real really popular, uh, gregarious man with a long, distinguished career in teaching. And it's the sort of funeral where the church would have been packed. And as it is, there's a couple of dozen people there and you can't give your cousin a hug and you can't even sing. I didn't realise that. You, you, they play, the, the organist plays, you stand up and, and then you sit down again, which given my singing voice is probably no bad thing, but... I was going to uh, say my my singing voice, likewise. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I was slightly along. relieved. I was slightly relieved when I saw that that, that particular restriction. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I, well, I hope that you know. Hopefully, it won't be too far off, and maybe you'll be able to do something uh, again yeah, with more people. Yeah, we'll do we'll do a proper memorial probably up north. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, that's your column in the magazine on Saturday. Yes, it is. Yeah. Esther Webber and Robert Crampton then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. You just need to get yourself a Times subscription. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Prue Leith and what we all need to lose some weight. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley. Uh, let's talk about government belt tightening, and I don't mean the budget. Today, Boris Johnson is unveiling a £100 million plan to tackle obesity including an incentive scheme where losing pounds means prizes. It comes as a, a new study today from the World Obesity Federation shows that close to 90% of coronavirus deaths have been in countries with high obesity rates. Unfortunately, that includes us here in the UK. We're the fourth fattest nation. Well, GP Sarah Jarvis told Times Radio earlier that the situation has got worse in the lockdown. And unfortunately, in the pandemic, of course, 
what's happened is that people haven't been exercising as much and they've been firstly grazing more. And if you graze between meals, then your body doesn't send the messages to your brain saying I'm full. And secondly, I think we as a nation are much less likely to sit down and eat together foods that we have prepared from scratch. So far more ultra processed food, far more people who are eating while they're distracted, which again tends to mean you eat more. Uh, that was Sarah Jarvis talking on Times Radio Breakfast this morning. Uh, in a moment, we'll hear from Prue Leith. Uh, she'll uh, tell us about how she's been working with the government on how to keep us uh, all healthy. But first, let's talk about that World Obesity Federation uh, study into uh, a possible connection between obesity and uh, coronavirus deaths. Dr Tim Lobstein is the Federation's Policy Director and the author of the report and joins me now. Hi, Tim. Hello. Good morning. Uh, so, uh, Tim, uh, is there actually, is it, it's one of those things, is it correlation or causation? Is it directly linked to obesity or is it the sort of countries which are obese are also the sort of countries which have seen particularly high levels of coronavirus deaths? Well, we wondered about that and we looked at things like whether it's the, the wealth of the country, you know, how, how rich people are, or whether it's the age structure of the population, whether there are lots of people over 65. But neither of those factors seem to account for it. Uh, we also looked for uh, whether the reporting of deaths was likely to be inaccurate in some countries, but that didn't seem to account for it either. So we were pretty convinced that this was this was more than just a happenstance, just a coincidence. Um, and then we looked at the medical literature and we found that, yes, the, um, the risk of uh, developing complications, needing hospitalization, uh, needing to go into intensive care, and indeed the risk of succumbing to the disease, COVID, coronavirus diseases, was higher in people with uh, overweight and especially people who are experiencing obesity. So uh, we, we thought, mm, there is something here. And what was interesting uh, that we found particularly was that there's a sort of public health threshold that when more than half the population are overweight, and unfortunately here in the UK it's, it's nearer 63, 65% of adults are overweight. Once above about half the population are overweight, then you get this sort of lift up, the great risk of um, needing hospitals to service all the coronavirus patients um, or needing to take very dramatic action. Uh, we have seen, for example, in New Zealand, where they too have a very similar um, overweight problem as we do, but they took very dramatic action. They've locked down their country, they closed the borders, they, and they've kept it remarkably low. Well, good for them, but of course that's a, a stopgap measure. They, they can't remain isolated forever. So at some point, unless they can get them all vaccinated, they're going to be um, in trouble. So uh, we thought it was a real problem. We think it is a real problem, I and mean, we're quite shocked to see uh, that such a high correlation between countries' proportion of overweight adults and the deaths from COVID-19. Uh, what are the what's the definition that you use of uh, being overweight and obese, and, and how does the UK compare to other countries around the world? Yes, uh, well, we are near the top of the top of the pack, I'm afraid. Um, overweight means that you have a BMI, a body mass index, uh, and you can look online to see how you calculate it. But basically, it's, uh, if it's above 25, then you're considered medically overweight. And if it climbs above 30, uh, then you're considered medically obese. And that is, um, I mean, that's obviously where you start getting risk factors for things like diabetes and heart disease and so on. I think what's not recognized very much is that actually when you get into those higher levels, you're at a, quite a high risk of developing uh, bad responses to infectious diseases. And that was the thing that 
uh, perhaps people aren't aware of. They know that non-communicable diseases, things like, as I say, liver disease, heart disease, diabetes, are linked to being overweight. But they're not aware that infectious diseases can also be more severe uh, if you're carrying excess body weight. And that, I think, is what has been shown up in our survey uh, out today. Yeah, I sort of wonder whether um, the coronavirus, the fact that everyone has been so badly affected by it and, and sort of thought about these things, that actually uh, maybe we might emerge from this with a better understanding of the connection between being being even just a bit overweight and the impact that might have on, on lots of health outcomes. I agree with you very much. Um, I think uh, the sort of connection I'm hoping that the government will make is not simply, oh, we've all got to exercise a bit more but actually see how important it is to invest in a healthy population, that an unhealthy population that's overweight, or most of the, you know, more than half the adults overweight, is really another pandemic just waiting to happen and another bad, uh, you know, impact on the NHS just waiting to happen. And investing in a healthy population is money well spent. It would prevent, you know, the awful hospitalizations and the lockdowns and all the all the issues that people have suffered as a result of this, the, you know, the lost employment, the, the lost holidays, the lost social life, the children's lost education, really, really significant um, impact on our economy and on our lives, which I think if we hadn't had the huge hospitalization levels, wouldn't have been needed. We wouldn't have needed to protect the NHS this way. So investing in a healthy population is really money well spent. And, you know, let's hope Rishi Sunak's next budget actually realises the value of health in a healthy population. And I suppose there is that impact, isn't there? That if you if you tackle health, if we were all healthier, if we all lost a bit of weight, uh, in the long term, that could save quite a lot of money for the NHS, for social care, for all the, the other knock-on costs, if you like, of looking after people who are unwell because of their weight. That's right. And it doesn't actually cost a lot um, to, to take some of the measures that would be needed. I mean, things like increasing the soft drinks levy. We have a soft drinks levy. It's put up the price of sugary drinks a bit and encouraged manufacturers to sell us um, unsugared drinks. Uh, we could put that up a bit more. It wouldn't cost the government anything. They'd get an income from it. Uh, we could put uh, much more severe warning labels on foods, junk foods, basically, that are high in fats and sugars. Uh, they do that in several countries now. Big black marks saying, you know, be careful. This is a an unhealthy food. Uh, and we could certainly restrict the advertising to kids of junk food right up to 9 p.m. at least, uh, which I know has been on the cards for, oh, since 2006, I think we were first discussing that, and it's not happened and it's not happened. So, you know, that's an, an easy measure that could be taken and would cost the government really very little. Well, it's really good to speak to you. Thanks very much for that. It's Dr. Tim Lobstein, who's the uh, uh, policy director of the World Obesity Federation. Up next, we're going to speak to Prue Leith about the government's plans to tackle obesity and whether or not uh, we should be focusing on uh, children and uh, trying to educate the, the next generation in eating it slightly healthier. Uh, that's next on Times Radio. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Yeah, so the government has uh, announced this £100 million fund to try and get us all to be healthier. It's also recruited the man behind air miles and nectar points to look at a pos possible national incentive scheme uh, for weight loss. You would, you know, points mean prizes. Maybe we could be called, I don't know, sweat points or run rewards. Uh, you might have better suggestions for that. In a message this morning, Boris Johnson says he's already seeing results since he cut down on late night cheese. 
Hi folks, I've been doing a lot, in fact everything I can, to uh, lose weight and to feel uh, fitter and healthier. And the, what I've been doing is I've been eating less uh, carbs, avoiding uh, chocolate, no more late night cheese, all that kind of thing. I've been getting up early to go for, for runs and the result is, you know, I actually have lost some weight, quite a lot by my uh, standards. and. Um, I, I feel much more energetic, I feel uh, full of beans, and I thoroughly, thoroughly uh, recommend it. I know there are many people who are in the same sort of position as I am and I was, and who, who want to lose weight. And that's why we're investing now in uh, the, that whole national objective. 100 million pounds to help people to access uh, GP appointments, uh, to get the right apps that they need to help them to, to lose weight, and uh, we're also looking at various kind of fit miles schemes as well. Uh, that was the Prime Minister uh, talking this morning. Well, let's now speak to Prue Leith, great British Bake Off judge, public health campaigner, and let's be honest, national treasure. Hi, Prue. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so, what's your, now? You've you've talked a lot in the past about sort of calories and how we all need to be a bit more careful with our uh, um, you know, what we eat. What do you make, first of all, of this announcement, this idea of a sort of incentive scheme? Points mean prizes. Well, Dune, honestly, I don't think, I think it's an excellent thing. I'm totally in favour of everything they're talking about because the main thing is that we do need to have a healthier diet. But the one thing that sort of worries me and that is missing from this is the focus on children because there's a bit of me that just feels, you know, we all go on diets and they never work or very seldom work. And then we go back to our old ways. And the trouble is that we haven't been taught to love a healthy diet. And if you can teach people to love healthy food, but it's much easier for, to do it with school children because they're young and they are still learning and they ha their ideas aren't fixed and so on. So I just am sorry that we're not, um, you know, I'm just a little frightened that we've sold the past with a lot of adults and that we should teach children to um, eat well while they're at school, which means teaching them to cook, teaching them about food and um, teaching them the importance of nutrition and diet and so forth. And then, you know, I think the, the re, one of the problems is that schools are meant to do um, teach nutrition and health and, and all the rest of it, but they don't have the facilities. There aren't enough food teachers. They haven't got teaching kitchens to teach kids how to teach, how to cook, and they haven't got sports facilities that they used to have. So I think more money into schools and health will at least save the next generation, even if we don't manage to save the adults. I suppose the thing is trying to break that cycle, isn't it? Rather than a, a generate another generation of children growing up, you know, mm. being used to you know unhealthy eating, junk food, and all of that, and then having to launch another incentive scheme in twenty years to try and to well, try exactly. and wean them off as well. Exactly. If if children grow up really eating well and not having snacks all day, and um, you know, I, I'm very extreme about this. I would have um, ch no food allowed in school except school meals because I, I think the trouble is the children won't eat a healthy lunch if they're, if they're full of chocolate because they brought in a whole lot of junk into school. So, um, you know, if we could just teach one generation to do it properly, then they would be they will like good food. If you like healthy food, you'll eat it. If you don't, how how are you ever going to force kids to eat it? 
Now, Pooh, I can I can already feel people thinking Pooh Leith wants to ban cake in schools. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, yes, I'm afraid I am. I'm saying, well, I don't, wouldn't mind a piece of cake um, and custard for pudding. You know, what I don't like is children eating all day, you know, snacks. You see parents offering children in supermarkets, they're offering them snacks all the time as if kids aren't complete unless they've got a chocolate bar in their hands. And we're the same as grown-ups. You know, you, if you look on a railway station, everybody is eating, a, is drinking a huge, big um, calorie-loaded um, latte and in one hand and a snack in the other. Do you think, I don't know, how, how's your lockdown been? Do you think we've been worse for that? I mean, I've definitely, you know, because I'm doing the show from home at the moment, you know, maybe between, you know, in the news, I might pop down and have a biscuit. And, oh, look, there's a slice it's of really tempting. It is, it is. And if there's cake sitting around, of course we eat it. Um, I'm glad to say that my husband complains that this, that, that my house is a cake-free zone. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> it's, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. I do make cakes. But I do try to serve them, you know, as as a dessert after supper or very occasionally if we have people around for tea. I just don't think you want to eat cake every day. Well, the trouble is, Pooh, I do. That's the point. But I just know I shouldn't. <laughs> I just know exactly. I shouldn't. That's because you weren't taught to love healthy food when you were at school. <laughs> and what sort of thing are we talking about in practical terms? What does this mean? Is this... Uh, you, you know, ha serving up really good, tasty salads and vegetables, and because you know people might think of school dinners and and do you know they're always couple... the most exciting. No, I know, and and there are a lot of schools who are a bit nervous about um, you know they there's a lot to be done. I mean, um, school there's a wonderful char charity called Chefs in Schools, which um, puts chefs into schools, and they teach children about food and to cook as well as to eat well. And the cooks eat with the children. This is primary school children mostly. And they I had lunch with the primary school the other day with them. And the chef sat down with all these little kids in a, a couple of big tables. And they all ate um, tacos, tacos um, filled with very different healthy things. And so there were sort of um, tomato um, and onion salads and um, little uh, sort of um, like chili con carne mix and yogurt and uh, squashed avocados and all sorts of stuff that they could, all healthy, and they could all pick and choose what they like. And do you know those children eat every day healthy food and because they enjoy it and they want to please teacher and the teachers sit down and eat with them, it really works. So there are schools that do it, and I know another couple of secondary schools who serve entirely vegetarian meals, which, of course, is a lot healthier. They Actually, I think they have fish on Fridays because fish is good for the brain. Um, but they have, they, have fish, they have fish on Fridays, but the rest of the time they have all vegetarian food and very interesting, yes, salads and stuff, but, but interesting ones, not just boring chopped-up lettuce and tomatoes undressed in a you know, wilting in a corner horrible so <laughs> and and the children you know this is these are these are secondary school children and they they love it and they what they do is they have a rule nobody brings any food into school so what happens is the kids are a little bit hungry by lunchtime and so they are prepared to try things that they wouldn't do 
And that's another thing. Children will try stuff if they're away from their parents. <laughs> I've noticed that very often parents will say, oh, little Johnny will never eat that. But the dinner lady says, well, he eats it whenever he can get it. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. In fact, I, I, I know. I think my wife only eats tomatoes because she once went to a friend's house and was too polite to not, you know, to, to turn a nose <laughs> off of whatever was soda. And now eats them. And now it's so maybe yes, be able to try those things. I know that last year, last year you were advising the government on uh, on improving the food. Never mind the food in schools, but the food in hospitals. And you even sort of <laughs> cooked up, you cooked up a storm. You cooked up a salad with um with Boris Johnson. Did you give him any advice on his uh, on his diet? Well, he did tell me that he was going to uh, lose weight one fine day, but that was when I had that conversation. It was before COVID, but now he's really converted. It's very good, isn't it? It is, it is terrific that the government is concentrating on food. They've also got this national food strategy that Henry Dimbleby has published half of and will publish the rest later this year. And he, and that is terrific because that's all about food and farming and education and food throughout the nation and how we should ideally be dealing with food. So the government is interested in food. The hospital food review, they accepted all eight of our recommendations, which was fantastic. And those recommendations were about um, kitchens being closer to the patient, about um, meals being healthier in hospitals, about um, nurses and dietitians and and cooks working together, about Oh, we had eight recommendations and they accepted them all and put the money behind it to, to do it. So I am not, I don't want to knock the government because I think they are trying to do, take food seriously. I just wish that this time they had um, done something about funding kitchens in schools and food teachers and equipment. Because, you know, schools are meant to teach children how to cook, but most of them, well, 40% of them don't do it at all because they haven't got the facilities. And they haven't got the teachers. There was obviously the policy of giving uh, free school meals to uh, infant school children. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it was a Lib Dem policy and it was sort of carried over for a bit. Mm-hmm. Would you like to see that sort of extended up? Should, should, all, should it be just free for all primary schools, maybe all secondary schools as well? Do you know? I, yes, I do. I know everybody's always in their head spending the government money. money, And, <laughs> and, I, and I do I'm sympathise with Rishi Shunak trying to... Um, you know, please everybody. But yes, if you're really serious about obesity and serious about health, the answer is free school meals, um, no lunch boxes, everybody having really good, delicious food at school. And this happens in other countries. I mean, Finland and Denmark, Finland particularly, um, do exactly that. And the children all sit down for lunch and lunch is considered a lesson although it's a very different sort of lesson, but the children learn about um, food in science and in sport and in um, history of food and everything. But they also spend two weeks a year in the kitchens cooking the lunches. And the, it's a no-choice no menu, but it's unless you have special diets and stuff, and 98% of the children eat it. But then they haven't been allowed to bring any food in, you see. So they're a little bit hungry at lunchtime. And it works. And the children, you know, and their obesity problems are nothing like ours. Uh, And what about sort of going beyond, you know, what happens in schools? We we were talking to um, Tim a moment ago from the uh, World Obesity Federation. He was talking about, you know, junk food ads and that sort of thing. Is that something you because they can can obviously have some influence? um, Yes, they can. 
Absolutely. I do think that um, I think that the, the manufacturers of junk food have got too big a hold on us. I mean, their product is so attractive to us. It's full of, it's very cheap. It's full of fat, sugar, and sometimes salt, um, but certainly fat and sugar. And they, they, there's, sugar is addictive. And uh, so we, I think the less advertising, the better. Their stuff's going to sell anyway. They just perhaps won't make quite as much money as they do at the moment. But the government, of course, is in a bind here because they get a lot of tax out of um, the junk food that we eat. So, you know, it's money in yeah. and money out. <laughs> I think they should spend all the money they make on tax in junk food on healthy programs. If we're going to follow the logical conclusion of this, this feels like Bake Off needs to be on after the watershed to keep it away from children's <laughs> eyes. Well, I have a maybe this you'll say, you'll say this is um, self justification or just convenient thinking, but I actually think Bake Off has done us a lot of good. Bake Off has taught, has got so many people into cooking, and bakers by and large are not fat people. Um, if you love, if you get into baking, you 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 progress into cooking. Generally, you start to think about go, what goes into your into your body, and I think that. Um, everybody should cook. You know, I'm always banging on about children learning to cook at school and so on. And so I think Bake Off has done a great deal, a great favor, especially in lockdown, because people have been making sourdough bread like nothing <laughs> before. I mean, just amazing amount of good bread being made and teaching people who've never had anything but a, a sliced loaf. I've had so many letters from people saying, I had no idea bread could taste so good. You know, everybody. We've, a... we've we've had a lot of bread at our house as well. If I must ask you because I know Jessica, my eleven-year-old uh, daughter, is listening downstairs. She's a big fan of Bake Off. If we're going to guide her away from the cakes, briefly, what's your top tip? What's the most fun thing that she could try and tackle, which is healthy but is also fun to make? Well, I I don't mind her. Uh, what's her name? Jessica. 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 I don't think it matters if you if you bake. I think I'm all for everybody baking, and baking is is great fun. It's a lovely hobby, and all this. Just don't eat cake every day. Why not try? I mean, if you like making bread and butter pudding, for example, why not try a savoury one? I make one where you put really good bread. You instead of butter all over it, you put pesto, and you layer it up with pesto and cheese and um, herbs and tomatoes, just like a a bread and butter pudding and put custard over it, but savoury custard, no sugar in it, just salt. And um, bake it in the oven. And it is the most delicious lunch. I can't say it's entirely healthy because it's full of cheese. <laughs> it sounds really good. Cheese. <laughs> but it's lovely. It does sound really good. And we should just mention uh, the great uh, great stand-up to cancer bake-off uh, starts, is it next week? Uh, no, started, yeah, next week, next week. Yes, Anyone, yes. Any, who should we be looking out for? Who's particularly good, but more importantly, who's particularly rubbish? I'm not, I'm not allowed to tell you. You've got to watch the show. You know that. <laughs> I can't tell you anything about it. We're not going <laughs> no, to get a repeat of when you I... accidentally let slip the, uh, the winner the of Bake Off. No, no, I'm not going to let slip the winner of Bake Off. Of course I'm not. I've learned my lesson. Oh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. But, um, but I had a lovely thing about Celebrity Bake Off is it's tremendously relaxed because the, 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 the bakers are there because they want to help stand up to cancer and because they're, they're there for a good time. They know that they're, it's, you know, they're not real bakers. And occasionally one or two of them are really, really good. 
but they get very competitive once they're in the tent. But the fact is they're there to have fun, and so it's very relaxed. And I like it a lot because occasionally, you know, they get into tremendous muddle, and Paul and I do help them in a way that, of course, we wouldn't dream of with a serious bake-off where you we're not even allowed in the place most of the time because, we, you know, the idea is we must stand back and be judges, not go in and say, don't do it that way, do it this way. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing, uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.